0: Let's go overseas now and check in on Ukraine as we like to do uh, regularly on this show. as you know they've been uh, Russia has been bombarding critical infrastructure in Ukraine, essentially trying to turn off the heat and turn out the lights, and have been pretty successful at doing so. Uh, there's still a lot of diplomatic activity in and around Eastern Europe these days. The Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie uh, was in Poland today. She says international bodies such as the OSCE need to keep a united front against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, she said we should not lose faith.
1: The OSCE is going through an unprecedentedly challenging period. But the day will come when Ukrainian men and women driven by the resolve of a proud people fighting for their homeland, for democracy and freedom, will drive out the invaders.
0: Uh, Jolie announced another million dollars for the International Criminal Court to look into sexual and gender-based violence everywhere, including a look into possible war crimes by Russia in Ukraine. This all comes a day after NATO pledged to send more aid to Ukrainian forces, leaders meeting in Romania, pledged fuel, generators, those are needed these days, medical supplies, winter equipment, and drone jamming devices. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba says the last time he was invited to a NATO ministerial meeting, his message was weapons, weapons, weapons. He has a new one now. Today, I have three different words, three three other words, which are faster, faster, and faster. Uh, we appreciate what has been done, but the war goes on. To the extent that Ukraine's main energy company says roughly 40% of its power grid still isn't functioning properly. In the capital, Kiev, the government has imposed rolling blackouts to avoid overstressing the grid. 1.5 million people are still without power for 12 hours a day. And of course, it's cold there. It's December in Ukraine. It's like December on the prairies. Well, joining me now with more on this is Roman Waschuk. He's Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine. He's Ukraine's current business ombudsman, and he joins us from Warsaw in Poland. Thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure. You know, it's it's been, to watch from afar, it feels like it's just been a relentless attack on Ukraine's core infrastructure, and the impact of it, uh, I guess, is hard to quantify, but what is the scope and scale of the damage right now to Ukraine's infrastructure?
1: I, I think what's happening to Ukraine's electricity electricity grid, especially since uh, October 10th, it's kind of like being a hockey player and having one concussion after another. Each one gets more serious just because the system, the grid, is more fragile. And so even if only 10 out of 100 missiles make it through, and it's been between 10 and 20 that make it through out out of approximately 100, most of these attacks, Still does a lot of damage to an already weakened grid. There was a moment, uh, I think part of a day last week, when uh, the national grid actually sort of came apart, didn't no longer function as a single entity. It's been put back together again. A huge challenge to any national government, of course, and to the population.
0: The impact, I mean, obviously for individuals, it's about heat, it's about electricity, um, but also for business too. I mean, a country without power, I, you know, I remember living through the ice storm in Quebec and that was, wasn't that long. This feels like that, uh, you know, that on steroids.
1: It is. And it means that all sorts of things are disrupted. I was uh, in Cave uh, just about two weeks ago and meeting with people in government and, you know, there'd be an air raid alarm. People would go down into, into their bunkers, say in the government buildings, your meeting would be called off, it would be rescheduled later, they would emerge from their bunkers. So imagine putting in a, a sort of a, a crisis government workday where you're constantly going up and down uh, between bunkers and offices, rescheduling things constantly. So it's it requires huge determination which Ukrainians fortunately have, uh, to keep going under those circumstances. And that, that, that for example, applies to my uh, ombudsman office staff as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, when we have our online sort of Zoom slash signal staff meetings, half the time, half the boxes are dark because uh, they have no power. They're operating off mobile.
0: I mean, we've, there's been obviously a lot of talk about Russia weaponizing winter, and this is clearly what's happening. But what is the mood like? It's been nine months now. We've gone through, we're about to head into the all four seasons of this war in some ways. Uh, What is the the spirit, the mood like, uh, as far as you can tell within Ukraine right now, considering just how hard this upcoming winter looks like it's going to be?
1: Well, there's a kind of Battle of Britain blitz spirit People exchange tips on, you know, where you can get the best power packs, uh, how you can boil snow and uh, sort of make do with that. So there's also, I think, a degree of frustration with uh, Ukraine's allies who keep saying, well, we wouldn't want to deliver more powerful or more Far ranging rockets, because that could be escalation. Because certainly, from the Ukrainians who are being hit on a weekly or bi weekly basis, they feel that Putin is already escalating pre- pretty significantly uh, against them. Now, y- 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 you mentioned weaponizing winter. It, yeah, it's being weaponized against civilians. Uh, right. On the other hand, the Russian army is not doing so well in terms of dealing with winter itself. So in general, Winter, in this case, is not working in favor of the Russian army, but the Russians are trying to deploy General Winter against Ukrainian civilians.
0: So with military losses comes further attacks on Ukrainian civilians, as we've seen throughout this war, really?
1: Yeah, uh, pretty much. The Russians are trying to gain, and they may have gained a kilometer, two, three, somewhere in the Donbass, just by throwing hundreds and hundreds of uh, conscripts and convicts at front lines in sort of scenes that are reminiscent of World War One, but it's not strategically changing much of anything. Now it's all about hitting civilians. And if you uh, devote some time to watching transcribed or translated uh, Russian TV talk shows, political talk shows, they talk about we want to drive 10 to 15 million people out of Ukraine. There should be no civilians left in the country.
0: You know, it's been nine months. I think we spoke early on in this war. Um, Do you see any possibility of anything changing? Are we now in for for the long haul, do you think, here?
1: The fields freezing over create another opportunity for the Ukrainians to try and go for a breakthrough on one of the segments of the front. We're seeing now that some of the areas towards the Sea of Azov, around places like Melitopol, Mm -hmm. Are being targeted by the Ukrainians, uh, Russian military dumps, bridges, the sort of things that they were targeting Kherson before they pushed the Russians out of Kherson. We're seeing it on the left bank, the sort of the eastern bank of the of the Dnipro River. You know, you, as I say, we 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 could have an inversion of roles where it turns out the Ukrainians are actually better equipped. The army is better equipped to deal with winter than the fabled winter-loving Russians. Uh, You know, Canada has, of course, supplied a lot of winter gear. uh, So have the Scandinavians. We had, I think, all of the Scandinavian foreign ministers and Baltic and Scandinavian foreign ministers in Kiev yesterday. So very strong support from that region. So I think you'll find that Ukraine may have a few tricks up its sleeve over the winter months.
0: Roman Westrick is with us this half hour. Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, when one looks at what Ukraine needs now, you would think of things like transformers, generators, things that generate electricity and heat. Uh, are we? I've been reading criticism of the of the way that the humanitarian effort has been continuing; that it doesn't seem to be nimble enough to to meet demand on the ground. What is the situation as far as that's concerned, and what more can countries like Canada do to help Ukraine get through what is going to be a tough, potentially cold, dark winter?
1: I think there's certainly needs to be a cohesive uh, sort of allied effort to do this. European countries and especially cities have set up a partnership program where city utilities look to see what parts they have that are compatible with, with the Ukrainian system and ship that in. Uh, yes, there's been a huge run on generators. Uh, I think within several hundred kilometers of Ukraine's borders, it's hard to find them anymore because Ukrainians are buying or friends of Ukraine are buying them up and shipping them in. I think Ukraine also needs those longer-range weapons that can dissuade and deter Russian launches before they happen. Because what's happening right now is de facto Ukraine has one sort of arm. Hide behind its back, saying you can't attack anyone outside your own boundaries. You just have to wait for the rockets to come and then hope you could knock most of them down. That's not a terribly satisfying position to be in. The Ukrainians have some rocket systems of their own that were in late development stages. You know, if, if Western allies want to keep plausible deniability, then they just need to quickly help the Ukrainians perfect their own systems, and then it's up to them what they do with their own rockets as opposed to, uh, you know, concerns that are also understandable on the part of the Americans or others that they don't want to be seen to be delivering systems that might hit a Russian airbase just as bombers try to lift off.
0: Right. I mean, it feels like the gloves have been off for a while, though, doesn't it? I mean, in that sense, I, re- I realize what the fear of escalation is. Um, but Russia, in this sense, to, you know, spares, spares, spares nothing. To attack, essentially, these—I mean, these are war crimes. Let's be honest: attacking a civilian population and trying to freeze them during the winter months is a war crime. It feels like the gloves are off.
1: They're off, certainly uh, for the Russian side, but there continues to be reluctance on supplying certain things to the Ukrainians. Canada's promised thirty-nine. Supervision Labs, and some other complicated name for them, should be arriving sometime soon, and they no doubt will be useful. I understand they're being up-armoured, uh, so that should make them even better. But Canada also has some old leopard tanks, and there's an idea to put together a consortium of countries that have... These leopard tanks, which are basically German manufactured, Mm -hmm. also to give Germany comfort and cover so that it doesn't feel it's out there alone supplying these to the Ukrainians. Again, for safety in numbers among allies so that the Russians can't focus their unhappiness on one particular allied country or other.
0: We've had, um, diplomatically speaking, we've had a lot of political change over the last nine months since this war began, whether it be uh, the U.S. midterms, a change of leadership twice in Britain, a change of leadership in Italy, um, elections in France. Uh, diplomatically speaking, I know there was always concern that there'd be fatigue in the West with this war. What's your Given the political changes that we've seen, um, what's your sense of where that is is at right now? Is the sense in the Ukraine and the sense in the middle that, that the, the, the will is still there?
1: I think so. I think a lot of the concerns have dissipated. First of all, the American midterms did not turn out to be a game changer. And again, you can see the the Russian TV commentators feeling very disappointed that crazy Republicans didn't do better than they did. The Italian government, obviously, it's controversial for a whole range of reasons in terms of the uh, past ideological affiliations of the prime minister and others, but they've stayed very much on message in terms of support for Ukraine. If anything, maybe even in weapons supply terms, kicking it up a notch from their predecessors. And we saw from yesterday's... uh, nordic scandinavian uh, visit very direct statements by countries that used to be more relaxed the swedish foreign minister says there's only one way out of this conflict and that is a ukrainian victory the russians by by escalating by being as propagandistically over the top as they are have in fact firmed up a number of the members of the western uh, alliance on this score
0: and Canada's role right now, how are we being seen in Ukraine these days?
1: Canada's training mission in the UK is much appreciated. Op Unifier and the fact that we've expanded it to, uh, to Poland. There is a recognition that Canada also has punched about its weight financially. I don't know how many of your listeners have decided to buy some Ukraine sovereignty bonds right. the government of Canada is backing. That has been noticed. Currently, Canada's not looking too bad uh, in terms of support for Ukraine.
0: Roman Maastricht, as always, thank you for your time.
1: You're very welcome.